0: The idea is to really push us to think about how can you say that you are anti-racist or you embrace anti-racism while simultaneously promoting and upholding white supremacy ideology.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Rosa DiDonato. And I'm Marian Leary. And you're listening to Amplify Nursing a Penn Nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing.
2: Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. Today on the Amplify Nursing podcast, we talk with Dr. Afiza Enkram, a postdoctoral fellow in the Penn program on race, science, and society. Curious about the history of nurses that shared experiences similar to her, she recently completed a doctoral degree capturing the oral history of black nurses and their struggle for equality during the Civil Rights Movement. Growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, as a child of a mother of the Civil Rights Movement, Dr. Ankrum understood the need to preserve these stories due to a scarcity of historical scholarship about Black nurses. Today, we talk with Dr. Ankrum about her early experiences in the profession, the inequities baked into the educational system, and who gets to tell the history of nursing, what's being taught, and whose work is celebrated.
1: Hafiza, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, we're really happy. Yeah, we're really happy to have you. I've been a big fan of your work. (laughs) Ever since I came to listen to you talk about one of your dissertation chapters, I found the work fascinating and I've been really excited and probably annoying emailing you to come and talk to us. So I I, I really appreciate it. Thank
0: you. Thank you for for, for, um, continuing the email. I did not forget. Um, I was just trying to, Finish that monster of a dissertation. Yeah. Finished.
2: Woo! Congratulations!
1: (laughs) Congratulations! So, why don't you tell us how did you come into nursing? Well,
0: I guess I'll say I was born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, and I attended Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida, for nursing school. I. I'm not one of those people who um, grew up always wanting to be a nurse. I didn't know anything about nursing. I wasn't even sure what I even wanted to study in undergrad. My mother suggested that I choose a major where when I graduated, I would for sure get a job. So my choosing of nursing was about job security. And that actually, I think, is the story of a lot of folk who come from marginalized communities because, you know, this is about the politics of choice, right? And who really has choice. And, you know, some things are sort of, I don't want to say handed to you, but, you know, they're limited. And for some of us, the limit is that the sky is the limit and for others, you know, the limit is the sky. That's why I chose nursing. I had all of these, it's interesting. Okay. So, you know, the same thing happens. I think the same same thing happens today where, you know, you're kind of told these, these tracks that are popular. Everyone is either going to be a doctor or you're going to go to law school. And I think if you're at Penn now, you know, it's Wharton, you know, those are like the big, you know, the big, big three. And you sort of feel as an undergrad, I think, kind of forced to choose between those three. And you don't really have the opportunity to expand. And maybe the first couple of years, you might take a few different courses, but you kind of got to figure it out pretty soon. You don't have a whole lot of time waste, And we know t- tuition is, is high. And so when my mom suggested nursing, and I had all of these oh, that was my point. I had all of these science courses. I had taken bio and chem and organic chemistry and animal diversity. I had taken all of these science courses, (laughs) wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. And when she suggested nursing and I went over to the nursing school and I was overqualified because I had all of these math courses, I had all this stuff but there were still some, some prereqs that, you know, that are very specific to nursing that I didn't have, but that's, that's how I ended up in nursing. It was about job security. And, you know, I liked the idea that I could live anywhere I wanted, you know, nursing is, you know, there are a lot of uh, benefits in nursing. And one of them is, you know, you can live wherever you want. So that's, that's how I, I ended up in nursing. And I have to say, you know, I didn't, I didn't like nursing school um, and and really didn't like nursing when I graduated. (laughs) And I don't think that that's uncommon either. Uh, Nursing school is is hard. I also had some experiences in nursing school that really turned me off. Yeah. So when I graduated, me and a group of friends, we had sort of this pact that we were all going to go to New York because it's nursing and you can go anywhere you want. Well, I went first. They never came. (laughs) (laughs) They never ended up going. So I was in the Big Apple and working at, you know, big hospital. And that's where it sort of started for me. Yeah. And I, I worked in, as cardiothoracic and uh, perioperative nursing. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I did, you know, I thought about anesthesia, but I remember the professor that I had when I was at Florida State, she was she was great. She was a site NP and I had mentioned to her that I was thinking about CRNA and she said, your personality, you know, you're so outgoing, I can't see you in the OR, you know, you need to be around people, and be honest, I can't do the OR because it's too cold, (laughs) it's just too cold, I wouldn't have made, I I mean, I was freezing in the vacuum, but the OR, forget about it, so um, that she, you know, she kind of convinced me to pursue something else that I guess would be more interactive, I don't know, but yeah. So that's, that's, I, I was at the bedside, not long. Um, I was did about two and a half years in cardiothoracic, then went into PACU, love PACU, oh, mm-hmm. just love it. Um, It it was really catered, you know, to my personality. You have to be very spontaneous. You have to like change to to be in and to work in PACU because things change and they change very quickly Mm -hmm. and you don't know what you're going to get. That was what I love. You know, cardiothoracic after a while you learn, you know, because it's the same open heart cases over and over again, but so many different types of cases and you didn't know when you went to work you know today might be the kidney kidney day today might be ortho day you know (laughs) you just you know and then we had three recovery rooms so sometimes I would be up there with the mothers and babies and it was it was you know it was wonderful but then you know I got burned out quick Mm at side nursing and so I went to while I was still working I did my master's I went to NYU Mm-hmm. and uh earned a master's in um nursing nursing education is what I focused on that so that sort of was where I started
1: that's After a that's something. a great cr- trajectory and I think <laughs> that I, I think I would agree with you most people don't like nursing school mm-hmm. I feel like nursing is portrayed so differently than what it actually is yeah. so that no one really has an idea of what they're getting themselves into until they're in it that's exactly yeah, yeah. And then, and then you're like, what? Yeah, that's
0: exactly it. And you, and then you really don't, I feel you don't really learn how to be a nurse until you're, until you're in it, you know, after I completed my master's, I then sort of stayed in the same hospital system and was hired as a clinical nurse educator. Mm -hmm. And that was a really interesting role because now I could see it from both sides. You know, I, I had the experience as a bedside nurse and now sort of in administration. It was just, it was very interesting and a very difficult job because you're in the middle. You, you're sort of being pulled in multiple directions from executive leadership. And then you have the nurses, you know, and I was dealing with or worked closely with the managers. So how I ended up at Penn, I'll tell you. So what am I? responsibilities as an educator was that I was supposed to coordinate the activities for Nurses Week mm-hmm. and I one year I did kind of like a, a informal type of survey where I was asking the nurses about the nurse pioneers leaders who, who they knew in nursing and everybody kept naming the same folks and you know who they are Nightingale and Doc and so what struck me, was, what, what stuck out was that no one could name any Black nurse leaders, mm-hmm. um, including the Black nurses. I said, well, that, there is an origin here. And so I became very curious about the history of you know folk in nursing who shared my experiences. And so I started doing um a little I I knew that I did not I knew I wanted to go for the PhD I just wasn't sure and I knew I didn't want to do science that was the thing um and I think I received one of those emails from Penn and I saw that there was a history center mm-hmm. and I was like what <laughs> you know? oh, okay, I didn't even know this was an option, because all you hear about is science, you mm-hmm. know, especially in, in the hospital, Nobody's, you know, n- nursing history is quite celebratory outside of the, and, and not necessarily outside of the academic space, because even in, in the academy, it could be quite celebratory, but I, once I saw that there was this field of nursing history, and I signed up for, um, you know, the PhD open house, and when I came Dr. Connolly, Cynthia Connolly was on the panel and I heard her um, talk about um, the Bates Center and I was like, that's it, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to study Black nurses.
2: And that's how I
0: ended up at end." Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's such a great story. Yeah. I love that origin story about how everything in your career flowed and took you to this, took you to this point. Mm-hmm. So when you you get accepted into the PhD program at Penn and you start to do your research. What did you do your dissertation on? So
0: um, my dissertation focused on Mercy Douglas Hospital School of Nursing. I, I use the uh, institution as a historical case study to examine the professional development of black nurses and their struggle for racial equality during the civil rights movement. The Bay Center has the Mercy Douglas collection. So it was kind of, I like to think it was waiting for me, um, <laughs> um, Because no one had had done any any real serious work on this on this collection. And I took a look at it and I said, yeah, this is what I want to study. This is what I want to focus on. You know, history is interesting in how you go about it. You can kind of come in with your research questions, or you can take a look at, you know, sort of the records and think about, you know, what is it that you see and, you know, your questions and your theories kind of emerge out of the records. And that's what happened. There is, as you probably know, a, a dearth of historical scholarship about Black nurses. And so it was just, it's really a wide open field. Um, there's so much work to be done. And we, know very little about the experiences of black nurses after world war ii i mean it's 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 just a silent resounding silence in in the literature so mercy douglas i'll just say a little bit about it was a black run hospital and nursing school in philadelphia in fact it's um it's was between on woodland between 50th and 51st street if you go up there You'll actually see, still see remnants of, of the institution. It's been demolished, but they have like the driveway where they used to bring in the ambulance. It was really incredible. The first time I went over there, I, I became a bit emotional because I do a lot of, I use, I relied heavily on oral history in my work. And so I had the stories that these nurses had told me in my head as I was walking through the community. And I could picture, you know, I could picture everything. I could picture the the nursing quarters, you know, the hospital, Mount Zion Baptist Church, which was sort of the spiritual arm of the hospital, is still there and open. You can go there on Sunday for worship service if you want. Mm-hmm. If you want, uh, I actually gave a whole spiel to the church about my project, and after people came to me and they were like, "My grandmama used to work at uh, Mercy Douglas," and I knew somebody, you know, I was born at Mercy Douglas, You know, all these stories of people in the community—it's just amazing. But it was one of the few black run Black-controlled hospitals and nursing schools in the country. What essentially what I wanted to, what I was looking at is how did Black nurses sort of survive this turbulent period of desegregation, right, Mm -hmm. where conventions around race and gender were changing, but they were gradually changing. And not only Black nurses, but Black Americans in general were facing so much white resistance
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: though nursing was the first of the health professions to sort of formally desegregate opportunities for um, Black women in nursing was were still sort of extremely circumscribed. So it wasn't until the 1960s with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that you know nursing was really forced to desegregate, just like hospitals and and medicine. So anyway, my I concluded that, you know, it was these Black-run hospitals, I said, that served as like a, I call it like a life vest. They kept the Black nursing profession afloat until Jim Crow was dismantled. Mm-hmm. Um, although that was not the intent. Mercy Douglas wanted to survive integration. They wanted to still be standing when the smoke cleared, but racial casts in healthcare mirrored you know, brought you know broader society. You know, blacks black hospitals were challenged by structural racism and inequality. You know, they didn't you know separate but unequal. Mm-hmm. You know, it was universal. It was in healthcare as well, and so um, the hospital and, and nursing school was chronically underfunded and under-resourced, And though integration didn't necessarily close the institution it played a major role but at the end of the day it was about systemic racism racial repression so Mm -hmm. yeah it's a fascinating it's an absolutely beautiful story Um, it it, my dissertation was just so rich and you know I knew it was going to be a social history but it ended up being political history a cultural history a labor history I mean that chapter that I believe um you hope you heard me read that ended up being a labor history chapter and it's it's you know, it's a story about resistance. It's a story about community. It was the community that did a lot of work to not only establish these institutions, but to keep them open. And, and you know, folk were doing everything from fundraising to donating equipment and supplies. You know, Black women were sewing sheets and towels and curtains. I mean, it was anything that they were donating food, anything that you could give to keep the institution alive. But I, I should say that Mercy Douglas was the product of the merging of two hospitals. These were two black hospitals in Philadelphia. Philly has just an incredibly rich healthcare history, black healthcare history. Uh, It was Frederick Douglass Memorial Hospital was the first that was founded in 1895 by Dr. Nathan Moselle. The second was Mercy Hospital, which was founded by Dr. Eugene Hinson and some medical colleagues. And those two hospitals eventually merged in 1948 and formed Mercy Douglas. The nursing school closed in 1960. The hospital held on for a bit and closed in 1973.
1: First of all, I have, there's so many things that I have questions <laughs> about. You had the opportunity to speak to nurses that actually went through the nursing program at Mercy Douglas.
0: Yeah. So I interviewed, I think a total of Uh, about 20 nurses. I also had interviewed a couple nurses, Black nurses that attended Jefferson as well. Yeah, they're in their late 80s, uh, early 90s. I think the oldest nurse I interviewed was 91. Her memory was sharp. I mean, it was just incredible what they could remember. And oral history, you know, when you talk about innovation, you know, historians are always looking for new ways to advance historical research through innovative theories and methodology. We use digital humanities, public history, oral history. And so, you know, the oral tradition is, is something that has been incredibly significant to the Black community for a long time because you know the power dynamic that exists in, in in society also lives in the records. You know whose stories get told, whose stories get preserved, whose get documented. The records can also tell a particular story. We didn't have a whole lot of material on Frederick Douglass, but we had a lot on 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 Mercy and then Mercy Douglass. But they were pretty complete. Most it was it was largely the voice of leadership. And the questions that I wanted to answer, I needed to know more about the professional experiences their institutional experiences of these women. And that some, there were some things in the in the records. Um, there were other questions that I had that only the nurses um, could answer. And so the Bates Center already had a relationship with these nurses. Um, I think it was the spring before I started Penn, um, they hosted a team for the Mercy Douglas nurses and yeah and so they had a contact list who I was so lucky they had a contact list already ready so when I came in <laughs> I had, and the, the the most important person was the president of their alumni association. So they still had an alumni association. It just, they just disbanded about two years ago and they gave money that the money that they had left, they gave to the debate center. That's kind of, I, I contacted the president. She put me in contact with some of the nurses and then it just kind of started from there. Initially it was, you know, it was kind of difficult because these are older black women you know, and when you're doing oral history work, you have to know your subjects, right? And I'm affiliated with Penn, which is the lead white institution. These women had had some bad experiences with previous researchers who happened to be white and, you know, interviewed them had taken their materials, some of their artifacts from nursing school, never gave them back, took their stories. They don't even know what happened to their stories. They, your senior um, black woman, you know, people will take advantage. And so when I initially started, there was definitely a barrier um, that I had to kind of break through to get them to trust me. But what I did have on my side was that I am a Black nurse, a Black woman nurse, and um, I'm younger than them. And so I think in some ways they kind of saw me as their grandchild. and <laughs> They were so proud of me too, you know. So once I kind of got the green light from the first few people that I interviewed, they, I think, I think they got on the phone and called, you know, each other. And it's like, she's okay. Yeah. "Yeah." And said I was okay. And then that just sort of opened, opened up um, the door, but it was, it was rough in the beginning. In fact, I thought that I was going to have to abandon oral history, which meant it would have been a completely different type of project um, if I had to rely only on the records. One of the nurses, um, Miss Marie Harvey, she was the first that I interviewed. And these were very these, these are very sophisticated, elegant, regal women, right? Mm-hmm. And so I I initially I was using video because I I take, you know, you take your uh, history courses and, and the best practices is that you use both video and you have a couple of audio recorders in case something goes wrong, so I had, like, multiple cameras, I had recorders, and it was destroying my interviews, because Mm -hmm. each piece of equipment is a different audience, Mm -hmm. and I'm talking about, you know, I'm interviewing older Black women, and they, you know, there's a reason why Black women don't share about our inner lives, Um, you know, there's always the concern about being scrutinized you know your 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 words being used against you and so once i got rid of once i realized that the cameras and everything was an issue and i i i got rid of it and i was interviewing miss miss harvey she said um you know, when you, when you do oral history, you send them a transcript for the, for them to read and make any corrections or revisions or if there are things they want to take out or add. Mm-hmm. And she sent me this beautiful letter. She sent the transcript back to the faith center. And in it, at the end of the letter, she told me, um, don't give up because I was telling her how I was having such a difficult time getting nurses to agree to the interview. You know, I would call them. They'll say, okay, sure, you know, and uh, call me, call me back though, you know, call, call me back in a month. <laughs> one, one person told me, she said she had to get her story together. She said, let me, this been so long, you should baby, call me back. And I said, okay, yes, ma'am. And so I called her back and they, you know, they tell you to call her back again. And then, you know, there's medical issues. You know, there's a couple of people I call they had just gotten out of the hospital, you know, it's all these different, these different challenges. But she said, don't give up. And it was almost like she just spoke a word over me because after that, it it just took off. I spent a lot of time with these women. I think my longest interview was Miss Dolores Brewer. It was eight hours. I went to her house at 11 o'clock in the morning and we sat on her front porch. And she had that lemonade and sweet tea. And I'm telling you, we talked, we gossiped like two old women in the church parking lot. Like, she told all they be, oh, I got the whole school on my stuff. I could have written a dissertation off her transcript alone. Okay. And cause okay, she loved to talk. Oh, it was so good. And then um I did a follow-up interview with her. And and you know, it was the same sort of thing. And you know, it was just beautiful because. They got just as much out of the interview as I did because this is, you know, I opened up space for them to tell their own story. I think that, you know, I was going to say they they had kind of started this sort of competition. You know, they would, every, every, each house I went to, they would cook for me. Right. Mm -hmm. So one would say, well, I heard, I heard Marie baked you some cookies. So, I done cooked you this, you know. It was like a little competition thing going on. Oh, you know, it was it was great. You know, I remember one nurse I interviewed, and she said that uh, they had, they kind of warned me about her. They said so she's tough now. She was she was tough in nursing school, and she's still tough now. She was the oldest nurse I interviewed. This one that was ninety one, and uh, but she was a cadet nurse. And there aren't many cadet nurses still alive. Yes. But they kept saying, you have to interview her because she she was a, she was a cadet. And I went in her house and she, cause all of them except for the, with the exception of three, I interviewed them at their home and I went and she, she, I walked in and she said, I said, you know, Oh, thank you for agreeing to talk to me. And, 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 you know, I'm just so grateful for this. You know, blah blah blah. And she's like, "Mm-hmm, yeah, it ain't gonna take longer than thirty minutes." I left her house four hours later because <laughs> that's it. You get them, you you know, you you open up. You get them to open, and they start mm-hmm. talking. And I I you know, I would always start the interview asking them about their memory of their great great grandparents, and they would look shocked because they're thinking that you know, I'm just going to come in, I'm not, even when I explained why I wanted to interview them and what my project was about, I think, I know that there was still this sort of element of what does she really want from me kind of thing, Mm -hmm. and so when I would ask the question about their great-grandparents, you know, there was just this, like, reaction of, oh, so you, you came to talk talk. I'm like, yeah, let's talk about it. (laughs) Let's let's talk about it. And and that's the part of the work that you're not really prepared for because, you know, I became close with these women. I would, you know, some of them I went to church with, you know, they were calling me, you know, uh, one nurse, uh, she, she got into a habit of calling me like, you know, five thirty in the morning. I answer, and she like, "Well, you know Martin Luther King," and I'm like, "No, we not like kids <laughs> at five o'clock in the morning. No, ma'am. You know, they No, 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 no." So, you know, and then you know they pass away. Yeah, they pass away, and it's it's hard. I intentionally avoided calling them during COVID because of their age, and I just didn't want to know. I needed to get through the dissertation mm-hmm. with, I just, I, I wanted to write and remembering them in the way that, that the last time I saw them, I just didn't want to know. That is my favorite part of the project is the um, the oral history. You know, it's just, there's just so many layers to it. Even in the dissertation, I decided... I paraphrase, I didn't, I didn't paraphrase much. I used direct quotes because I wanted them to tell their story themselves. Mm -hmm. That's what I did. Yeah. So that is, that is when you think about sort of innovative approaches to history, you know, the way in which um, the black community have used oral history as resistance, you know, even though you, you know, the powers that be attempted to erase me and, you know, erase our stories, they are preserved through, you know, passing them on through generations. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I knew this to be true just growing up in Birmingham and, you know, which you know, they used to call it Bombingham, you know, because of the bombings, the mm-hmm. bombings. And my, you know, mother was the children. She was part of the children of the civil rights movement. So and they were very active, and so I grew up hearing a lot of stories about the movement. Stories that, um, I, I, in fact, there's somebody I have to interview in my family, because I, I I'm going to write some stuff as well about some the stuff that was going on down south. But I grew up with a, a very clear understanding of how powerful um, oral history is, just from my family preserving those stories by telling them. You know? mm-hmm. And so, yeah.
1: So what, what was the most surprising thing that you learned from the oral history? Was there anything that jumped out that was like, wow, I didn't expect that.
0: So oftentimes we, there's this characterization of, um, and this is political, this is self-serving of the South as being sort of the bad guys, you know, um, people sort of restrict racism to the south whereas the north is depicted as being progressive you know it was a land of refuge of opportunity of freedom and then when black folk migrated north and they realized that um, many of the same issues that they were facing in the south also existed in the north But I think I was a bit surprised at the severity of racism in in the northern nursing establishment. They told very detailed stories about their experiences with, with discrimination. And you can't find these stories right now in the record, maybe in Darlene Clark Hines' work. Because um, we had some overlap, and which was great for me as a as a new researcher, you know, I found some of the same things that she found in in her project. I was surprised a bit by the the their boldness, um, because nursing, you know, uh, and and still in many ways today was very um, conservative, and nursing school was very strict, and this was across the board, you know, black nursing schools, white nursing schools, and there wasn't a whole lot of toleration for uh, tolerance of, of defiance. I was surprised at how at their, not that they resisted, but that they were willing, you know, they were willing to risk their jobs, you know, for, and the demand for just treatment, to just be treated, to to be treated you know, with dignity and respect mm-hmm. and they would quit, you know, that was surprising to me how they would, you know, they would quit a job if they felt, you know, that they were being unfairly true, which meant they quit a lot, but they were so confident. They were so, com- and that was one of the great things about Mercy Douglas was the amount of time that they spent. I, I, in the thinking of the dissertation, I talked about, like, it was almost like they were preparing them for combat, you know, because the, The the nursing instructors knew, you know, because many of the instructors from Mercy Douglas came out of the South. So they had a particular orientation to white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And they prepared them almost like, you know, like they were going out to war. Mm-hmm. And um, they spent a lot of time building up their confidence and who they were, not only as nurses, but just as Black women. And that became like their shield, even more than their competence, because there was no denying. If you made it through Mercy Douglas, you had no choice to be put, to, to be uh, anything but competent because, you know, Black hospitals were so under-resourced that you know, nurses had to or were expected to produce the same outcome with less than 50% of the resources. So they had to be, they, you talk about innovation, oh, they had to be innovative. <laughs> you know, they had to make things work. And that was something that they all mentioned that Mercy Douglas taught them how to improvise. And so it wasn't about their, you know, about their intelligence and, and skill. It was about being able to survive the emotional and psychological trauma, the picking away, you know, the constant picking away at your esteem, and how they were just able to hold on, not break. Mm -hmm. The stories are are just, you know, they're incredible. They're powerful. They also explain why there has been such an effort to conceal these stories, the whitewashing of nursing history. I always say that nursing history reads like a, uh, the the historical nursing record reads like a a history of of white women. And that's not accidental. You know, that's not, that's, that's, that's an intentional political project. Mm -hmm. And we see that right now, right now, today, this current attack on the history curricula of 1619 on Mm-hmm. Critical race theory, really on anything that does not portray the United States and nurse and and um, you know, white people in a positive light. This is nothing new. This is part of a, a much longer and broader history of. White elites controlling what you can know, what you can teach to suppress political dissent and to control the people, because the people are much easier to control when they're miseducated and undereducated. Much easier to control, much easier to dominate. That's why enslaved people were killed for learning how to read and write. You know, I, I feel so Grateful, Angela, that I got to get these stories on record, and like to me, that is that is my contribution, and I think that is the biggest thing that I have done in terms of this project, in terms of my nursing career. To be honest, is that these stories are going to be here forever. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to be here forever, and and there are oral histories of Black nurses out there. I'm not saying that this is this is it, but Mercy Douglas was pretty special. I'm just grateful to just have been a part of it, you know, and that they shared that they were willing to share their stories with me. you know there are whew, there is a lot that I left out of the dissertation because um I have to do some more reading you know you have to be gentle with some of these stories you know you have to give them the serious attention and care that they deserve some stuff you just can't just put out there and they share you know a lot of things about their inner lives that I know we don't have a lot of material about that because there's certain things that black women just simply do not talk about Mm -hmm. and there was one interview I cried in the parking lot I sobbed because I simply could not believe that she shared with me what she shared with me. And she told me that I was the only person who knew this story. And she gave me permission to share it, but we have to wait for her children to pass away because even they don't know the story. Wow. Yeah. And I, I sobbed because I, I just felt like I was like chosen or something, you know? Yeah. I just couldn't I, I was sitting on the edge of my seat when she was telling this you know telling our story I just could not believe that that she was sharing this with me Mm -hmm. you know and then when she finished she kind of fell back in her seat and she let out this huge sigh you know this this breath you know it's like you could see the weight being lifted off her so she'd been carrying this for, for her whole life yeah And then that's when she said, you know, you're the only person I've told the story to. So, you know, when you you, asked, that's your answer to your question. You asked me things that were shocking. I mean, I'm not going to share what she told me, but there was some shocking. There were some stories that, you know, things that I was not even aware of. And um,
1: yeah. Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode. And we'll be back with more in a few minutes after this quick break. Soothing Sense
0: supports the Amplify Nursing podcast. Nurses are busier than ever with even more pressure to create positive perceptions of care while keeping risks low. Quease Ease by Soothing Sense was designed to do just that. Created by a nurse anesthetist, Quease Ease is an innovative aromatherapy intervention that helps manage patient nausea and discomfort without IVs or a physician's order. It's entirely drug-free and non-drowsy. It smells great and it comes in a groundbreaking inhaler system that patients can use all by themselves whenever needed. Request your sample kit today at soothing slash medical
1: The thing that struck me when you were reading the chapter that you were sharing were the barriers in high school that were put in place in in High school and elementary school that precluded these women from even pursuing a nursing education because they were ranked in such a way that they weren't giving the coursework that would then allow them to go forward into a professional nursing program. And that as high school students, they were taking night classes to try and fulfill those requirements so that they could eventually go to nursing school. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was such a shocking thing, yeah that it was a, a profound change in how I started to look at at things. Mm-hmm. And it was it was incredible to me that they worked so hard, to get themselves to a place where they could pursue their education. Because I knew for me as a teenager, I'd be at the drive through at McDonald's. Like, I'd be like, oh, huh, well, I guess I'm not going to nursing school, you know? And that drive at such a young age and knowing that they had so much more to offer than what they were being told is, in, is incredible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that, and the thing is, inequality in public education and mm. how, you know, you know, back to what, how I kind of started this and talking about who has choice,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: you
0: know, that's still happening today. You know, who has access to the resources and the opportunities to meet the admission criteria for pen nursing? Mm -hmm. You know, these things are shaped by race and class. And even as we say, these policies are race neutral, they're not because racism is baked into the system. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it, it determines whether or not, you know, as I, t- in, in that chapter one of their ability to even satisfy the course the, the, the prerequisite, you know, requirements, you know, all of this was being shaped by this racialized system. Even students who, um, cause I, I think, I, I don't know if I told that story uh, during the seminar talk, but, you know, even students who did meet the criteria and weren't initially accepted until they got to the interview and they realized that they were black. And then they told them that they they rescinded the offer. You know, I wrote in the conclusion that, you know the dismantling of Jim Crow did not mean, you know the end of racial exclusion. It just meant the, the invention of new, covert, sophisticated ways to exclude. Today, it's illegal to say that you know, you can't get in uh, because you're, you know, Black or because you're Asian or whatever, but they find other ways, maintain whiteness, structural whiteness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you see the evolution of these things and why we're dealing with what we're dealing with and witnessing what we're witnessing in nursing t- today, you know, after having studied all of this stuff, it's just so clear that the, 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 trajectory and though nursing has definitely made progress in terms of being a more um, diverse uh, profession along ethnic gender racial, sexual religious lines you know the I hire, the hierarchy you know it was just expanded to include more individuals but you know white nurses continue to hoard the power and status of resources that did not change. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the hierarchy of humanity of that that wasn't significantly altered you know it's still the same we're still fighting the same system we're still in the same system and so Mm -hmm. I mean I'm working on a paper right now about this very long campaign by nurse elites to raise the status of nursing primarily through nursing education reform. And that always entailed gatekeeping, who could hold the title of professional nurse. You know, black women, just like, um, for to, to a, uh, a certain extent immigrant women, but after a while, if you had white color skin and that, that was enough, you know, men, um, poor women who were excluded. You know, this is, this campaign continues today it was in 1948 that the Brown Report was released that recommended that the bachelors be the entry-level degree into nursing practice, and you see we're still on that, mm-hmm. you know, there's, that's still being pushed, and, and a very large vocal group that supports the closing of associate degree nursing programs. Well, associate degree nursing programs educate a disproportionate number of racial minorities, Mm-hmm. And on the surface, it looks like, you know, it's just we want to improve nursing, but it's never just been about improving nursing. It's always um, improving nursing has always meant whitening nursing, you know, keeping nursing white and middle class, which meant the initiatives, um, legislation has always functioned in a way to keep certain groups out. And mm-hmm. so, but, you know, you got to kind of, you got to know history to know the the racial politics that's undergirding a lot of this stuff. Got to know the backstory, the origin.
1: That's part of the reason why I was so interested in, in your work is because I'm really interested in how we ended up here on all levels. You yeah. know, I, I focus a lot. I work a lot in, in advocacy for my profession and how we got here in this position that we're in now is is so incredibly important, and not knowing that history and not understanding how those structures were put into place is a huge detriment to being able to move forward because you can't dismantle something that you don't see.
0: Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And and that's and that's why it's been so important. And I'm 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 excited to see this, um, you know, it's small but it's growing movement to decolonize. The nursing curriculum, which necessarily you know, it includes decolonizing nursing history. You got to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, this is about truth telling. You know, you know, part of nursing social currency has been this image of of sanctity of innocence. So you know, it, it's part of the social construct of white middle class womanhood. I mean that that was just, that was the basis of the. Uh, modern trained nurse that whole social construct you know and so there has been you know an intentional effort to conceal these types of, of history the projects that I'm doing right now uh, well one of them in particular is about centering uh, this is part of the PMAS project that I'm working with you know as a postdoc with PRSS. Mm-hmm. PMAS is um, stands for Penn Medicine in the Afterlives of Slavery Project. This is an initiative that was launched by Dorothy Roberts by the request of President Gutman that builds on the Penn and Slavery Project. So you know the Penn and Slavery Project investigate and document the university's connections to the institution of slavery. And so PMAS now looks at the continuous consequences of enslavement on medicine and nursing. And so one project that I'm working on is about centering, recognizing and centering the contributions of Black doctors and nurses who were Penn graduates. And and not and, and not just any graduate. I mean, these were people who made substantial contributions uh, to the development of uh, American healthcare. But um, as we've discussed, you know, their their contributions have been nearly erased. And the project really grew out of my dissertation that I told you, you now focused on um, Mercy Douglas. And I mentioned that Dr. Nathan Moselle, who was the founder of Frederick Douglass Memorial Hospital and Training School. He was also the first Black person to graduate from Penn Medicine. He was treated horribly as both a student and later as as a medical practitioner in Philadelphia. And so what I'm thinking about is how has Penn Medicine, to what extent have they recognized his contributions. I, Cause I've gotten the support um, from Dorothy for this and we're thinking about different forms of, of recognition. You know, is there even a lectureship in his honor? Is there, you know, when they're teaching medical history is he even mentioned? I mean, this was the probably most significant figure when we talk about uh, the history of black Philadelphia, Philadelphia healthcare. And he was the first black graduate from Penn. But there are reasons why they would not mention him because of the severe racial hostility and discrimination that he faced when he was both a student and a physician. And my hope is, um, if, I, if this really works the way I want it to, that we can then expand to pit nursing. Look at Minnie Clemens, who was the first Black woman, first Black person to graduate from, from HUP. You mm-hmm. know, she's not even really, uh, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I didn't really hear anything about her when I was a, a student. We don't have any records on her in the Bain mm-hmm. Center. You know, this project really, you know, it asks the questions around, you know, what does it mean to celebrate and honor those who were either, you know, indifferent to or upheld racial caste? while ignoring those who fought against racial injustice you know why do we celebrate Nightingale who supported British colonialism and was anti-black while ignoring Sojourner Truth and Mabel Stompers and Estelle Riddle, Riddle who were freedom fighters you mm-hmm. know why why do the narratives around these great white nurse pioneers why do they dominate our understanding of what counts as history you know these are the types this is this is what I'm doing with this you know with this project and the idea is to really push us to think about how can you say that you are anti-racist Or you embrace anti-racism while simultaneously promoting and upholding white supremacy ideology, and we do this in various ways. It's in the textbooks, you know. It's in on the walls of the nursing school, whose portraits are on the walls of the nursing school. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You know, it's in the Nurses Week celebration. Who are we celebrating? Year every year, it's the same folk. You know, it's in. It's in the archives, you know, Mercy Douglas is doing a lot of diversity laboring and, and I, I've had conversations with, with uh, Julie about this. So this is not, not a surprise. You know, they're doing a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of diversity laboring in that archive because they're the only collection of a black nursing school in there. That is sort of the intent of that particular project and um, we'll see what happens. I'm going to do a, a a presentation. We have a symposium next spring, uh, this spring, and I'm gonna talk about Moselle and my ideas around this. Um, you know, a lot of institutions across the country who've been studying their connections to um, enslavement have been taking down monuments. Mm-hmm. You know, why isn't there an endowed chair in Minnie Clemens' name? You know, why aren't there why isn't there a portrait of her? Own? Why don't anyone know who she why we don't we hear this name? You know what? you know, it's just you know these are the questions that you have to ask, you know, and you can't you can't actually be serious about this work and while also reproducing whiteness. You just can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that we should stop talking about Nightingale. Nightingale has made some absolutely incredible contributions to nursing. I mean that they say the founder of modern trained nursing, but she was also an imperialist. And that has to be that story has to be told. And we have to deal with the messiness. When people say things like, well, she was a woman of her time, well, that's dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's dehumanizing because there was never a point in history when black people were not human. So to say that she's a woman of her time, you you are not only denying. Black humanity, but you're ignoring the efforts of many people, black and white abolitionists, who fought against uh, anti-black racism, Jim Crow, like so, You know, indigenous genocide. You know you you're, you're saying that these were everybody didn't believe this stuff, but <laughs> right. you know, you know there were people who knew that this was inhumane. Mm-hmm. Nightingale supported. She she supported genocidal uh, uh, attack on indigenous people. And, you know, you we can't, we have to tell, it's, it's, it's time to tell the truth. You know, there's a lot of ways that we're approaching this that are, that's not going to lead to structural change. It just allows you to give the appearances. So things are, you know, you're making a difference or you're changing things, but really the system and the hierarchy remains intact. The structures remain intact you know I'm, I'm not you know when people say you know we have to expand the record to be more inclusive that sounds like the record is accurate it sounds like you're baking a cake and this is the batter this is the base and then we just gonna sprinkle some stuff in there no 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 The batter is wrong. The foundation has to be completely dismantled. You know, this is what abolitionists mean when they say the the system cannot be reformed. You have to completely dismantle the system. You know, the record has to be rewritten. When people start talking about radical, you know, this
2: is the, the real work.
0: And there are a lot of folk who won't support this. And when you think about it, it makes sense because. You know how many people are actually willing to give up their privilege, you know, willingly relinquish their privilege in order to achieve um, true liberation, true freedom. You know, we we romanticize this stuff, we romanticize our revolutionary leaders and radicalism and all this stuff, but people forget, people die. A lot of folks die. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's always a sacrifice. You know, white people have never voluntarily given up their privilege, black people have always had to fight. I just think that we have to, you know, we have to ask some really serious and hard questions, questions that people don't want to answer. You know, part of what makes pin Nursing elite is that it's so white, mm-hmm. you know? So what would that mean if it wasn't so white anymore? Does that mean it's no longer elite? Who's going to be okay with that?
1: I completely agree with you. I mean, we tend to have this very finite mindset, and if i'm elite therefore you cannot be that's right you know what i mean and right. i think that we just need to flip the whole script and say you can be elite in you and your story and yourself and i too can be elite in my story and myself and until we get to that point where that fear of i'm not going to have it is there then we're not going to be able to to continue to move forward but the one thing doesn't necessarily have to impact the other it's this this scarcity mindset that we have, that if you succeed and you do really well, then therefore it's going to take something away from me. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's not true. It's really not true. I've found that I get the most out of, and I become a better person, the more I support and encourage and help to grow other people. I get better and better with that, with every person that I mentor, with every student that I mentor, with every, you know, that was a big part of the reason why Mary and I started this podcast is that there is so much out there that nurses do that people don't see and people don't hear. And, you know, we want to make sure that we, you know, amplify all of those voices so that people can see all the great things that people are doing. And it's, You know, it's not about us, it's about the group and it's about the profession and it's about all the great things that people are doing. And none of that takes away from me. That's the part that's so I find so strange is that nothing, none of that takes away from me. So why are people so afraid? It's a it's a really it's a big mindset change. I feel, I don't know, I feel like it's coming. I could probably be a little bit naive. I feel like it's something that we're getting closer to approaching. You know, we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Yeah.
0: I, I don't know, past few years, you know, I just hope that people are recognizing what is happening and how a serious fight that we're in, civil so rights legislation being peeled back, Black folks are back to fighting for voting rights, we're fighting mm-hmm. for abortion rights, we're fighting, I mean, it's one thing after the other, and now we're fighting to be able to read and learn what you want to read and learn, I mean, that's, that's a, um, it's not headed in a, a a good direction. And I've told all of my friends and I'll tell you this, you know, save your books because we're headed to a place where books are going to be valuable because certain things you're just not going to be supposedly allowed to read. And we can't say that this is like, like that's, that's ridiculous no there is a point in time where people were killed for learning how to read mm-hmm. and knowing how. you know this is America this has happened black mm-hmm. studies black people had to, to, to black scholars had to fight for a black studies program you know in Philadelphia during the 60s they had to fight to get black history included in the curriculum I mean mm-hmm. these are not all of this stuff has a Is you know has a history and it's you know, my concern, I think, is just that, and I, I think also because we are being bombarded, it's every day, it's something different. It's something else. You know, I think people are, are exhausted, frustrated, um, but we can't give up. We're in a serious fight. Now, we need all hands. You know, everybody needs to be on board. Um, I think now there's another project that we're working on. <laughs> with Dr. Fairman, Julie Fairman, uh-huh. um, and it's a project to investigate the connections between Penn Medical School, the early medical school, and PUP training school. So let me, let me just give a little bit of a backstory. So, you know, as I mentioned, PMAS, the Penn Medicine and Afterlife of Slavery Project, focuses on the history of the medical school and its ties to slavery. Mm-hmm. as well as the institutions use and treatment of african descended people, both as patients. I'm sure you're familiar with medical experimentation mm-hmm. and as medical practitioners. It just is so beautiful because it just keeps building. So they started with Penn and Slavery Project. Now we're building up with PMAS. And now Julie and I are thinking now, okay, now where does nursing sort of fit in all of this? Well, Penn's early medical school was one of the key producers and disseminators of Mm -hmm. scientific racism. And they taught this race-based medical knowledge to medical students who then graduated and many of them went down South and they also Mm -hmm. became, were very instrumental in um, helping to sustain um, um, the institution of slavery. Mm -hmm. But some of these physicians also taught help nursing students. Mm-hmm. And this is because, you know, this is very common because at this time, nursing, trained nursing was just founded. So there was no body of nursing faculty. Mm-hmm. So physicians would teach, um, you know, taught the first sort of group of nurses. And that practice actually continued well into the mid 20th century because there was also a faculty nursing shortage. And so physicians would kind of volunteer, teach nursing students. Our project probes whether these physicians from Penn Medical School transmitted this race-based medical knowledge to help nursing students. Mm-hmm. What's driving this question is this sort of bigger question around how did the notion of biological race enter into nursing education? Mm-hmm. Because PMAS is doing work in finding that Penn Medicine was a, I mean, key producer and right. circulated these ideas. And this is how it, it you know circulated in in medicine. And so, you know, where did these ideas come from in nursing? Because we know, um, just in in the research that I've done, that nurses, um, white nurses absolutely promoted scientific, you know racism, these ideas around you know biological racial hierarchies. And so we're still in the early stages of the project. And um, so I don't have any findings to to, to share just yet, but it, it does have the potential to make a big impact. The work that they've done in the medical school has led to policy changes. We'll see what this would mean for, you know, how we teach and use race as a variable um, in research, how we teach about it in nursing education, also in nursing practice. Mm-hmm. We, we oftentimes use race is a proxy for, um, culture. That was something that I noticed you and anesthesia. When I worked in the PACU, you know, racial disparities in pain management and, um, they were calling it cultural competency, but it was not, it was medical racism. You know? mm-hmm. And it was rooted in these old ideas about these so-called differences in black and white bodies and black and white and brown bodies. And, you know, um, who could tolerate pain, who's more sensitive, whose pain is real, whose pain is normal. Mm -hmm. So that's a very exciting project.
1: That is an exciting project. Mm -hmm. All right, so as much as I would love to continue this conversation, I could do it for hours and hours. Thank you. (laughs) I'm going to be cognizant of your time and I really, really appreciate it. And I appreciate your, your work and your expertise. And I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out next and it was such a
0: pleasure.
1: Yeah, thank
2: you so much. It was great. I enjoyed it, and good luck to you, too. Hello, Marion. Hello, Angela. How's it going?
1: It's amazing. How are you?
2: I am great. I can't tell you how much I loved listening to your conversation with Dr. Enkram. Like, seriously, she is an amazing storyteller and I could have just listened to her all day.
1: I know it was, I was so excited for that interview. It was really, really good. And she's doing such really incredibly important work. We, I think in nursing, don't have a great sense of our own history. And I think it's so important that everybody understand where it is that we're coming from. Her research about black women trying to become nurses in the 1950s and 60s and all the barriers they had to overcome is a really important story to tell.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, she says it really well in her interview. We really need to understand the origin story of nursing and where we're at now and how that all plays together and who gets to tell that story. It reminded me of Raven's interview and the project that she's working on, Nurses You Should Know Project, trying to highlight the history of a nursing profession, but the history of Black nurses within the nursing profession.
1: Yeah. Totally, they're, they're, both, they're both doing the same thing in different ways. And I think they're both doing a phenomenal job of it. It's just incredibly important, especially when you consider you know, where does policy come from? Where does the attitudes and culture of nursing come from? This is where it comes from. And if we don't take a hard look at where it came from, we're not gonna be able to make changes.
2: Well, Angela, this was the last episode of season four, and we hope everybody enjoyed this short season. We will be back with you in 2022 for season five, and we hope everybody has a healthy, safe new year.
1: Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa DiDonato and Marion Leary and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing with special thanks to our Department of Information Technology Services for their assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing.
2: Follow us on Twitter at PennNursing. Until next time, keep pushing over, under, around, and through. We want to thank you for listening to the Amplify Nursing Podcast and remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. And if you can do us a solid, please rate and review us as well. It will go a long way in amplifying our episodes.